Okay, well, I was gonna give you a short little um, background on global production because if you are planning on growing and selling in your region, it does matter what's in the store and where are they getting those berries from that might be in stores near you. Um, as consumer trends have changed, um, so has, you know, we used to can 150 quarts of peaches to support our family over the winter and that hasn't happened in 20 years or 30 years, you know, so, are, uh, are you in an area where um, your customers would be coming out to you pick? Is that even popular anymore? Are you close enough to people? Um, farmers market stands, where are you gonna market your berries is the first question I ask about any crop before you grow the crop. Farmers are really great at growing things and they really don't do well at selling things or tracking how much it costs you to grow it and how much you made off of selling it. So just, um, <coughs> That's one of the key places I start is what, why, where am I gonna sell these things or, or am I gonna consume them myself? I guess that, that, from that perspective, how many pounds of berries do I wanna eat for the year? Um, generally, a blueberry, blueberry bush in full production should produce 30 pounds per plant. So just to give you an idea how many pounds you might have. Um, okay, so um, this is production, 2012, 2014, 2016 by region, and I just wanna point out the growth that we've seen since 2012, um, and this is in metric tons. So million, I think it's million metric tons. We're getting close to that billion pound mark as a global industry. Um, North America is growing, South America is growing, and then the, the um, Asia, you can see Asia Pacific region is also growing in their production. So just to give you an idea, um, South America is counter season to us. Um, so when you see fresh blueberries in the store now, they're coming in from Chile, Peru, and Mexico, sometimes Southern California. So to give you some perspective, an acre of blueberries um, can produce, we expect it to produce, produce 20,000 pounds the acre. Blackberries are only gonna produce 10,000 pounds the acre. And raspberries are in the 12,000 pound to the acre range, and strawberries are like 40,000. But that's a high density, high intensive planting situation, also in California that runs like eight. I think it's like 18 months before they stop. So they don't. They're not a seasonal down there. They're they're daylight neutral. So they continue producing and they rip them out. So to give you a perspective, I guess blackberries would be half of that. But then blackberries are planted four feet apart. So a lot farther apart. So a cane on a blackberry really spreads out. Just to show you the increases, some of this is probably, you probably may not care about this at all. So um, <laughs> one last, uh, another look at it. United States production has gone up by 40, um, was it 40 million metric tons? So that's a, a big increase. Um, Oregon and Washington now lead the country in production. Interestingly enough, also Oregon is the highest yield per acre anywhere in the world. So there's natural habitat in Oregon. Um, we have naturally acidic soils in the mid five range. Um, we have temperate climate in the wintertime. We're usually not too cold, not too wet. Um, well, we're 48 inches of rain. Um, so, uh, the East Coast used to be the big production, New, um, New Jersey and Michigan used to be the big production in the country. 
they aren't, they're um, slowly dying out and attrition is happening there and the West Coast is increasing. Although we're slowing plantings. So in the West Coast in Washington, they're mainly grown up north of Seattle on the west side and they're grown in the Tri-Cities area, Yakima, um, the eastern side there. They're spreading out a little bit to Walla Walla and then there's some in Hermiston. And in Oregon, it's all, it's all pretty much, well, Hermiston, but it's all the Willamette Valley. So there's about 12,000 <coughs> acres of production in the Willamette Valley, maybe 14. Process, so this is what's being produced. Um, fresh, frozen in the United States is about half and half. Chile, you can see, is mainly fresh production. Um, that also is just, they export a lot. They have zero tariffs going into most countries and we have like a, we, when I first opened up South Korea to fresh blueberry imports, it was a 45% tariff. So um, it's difficult. Uh, Mexico is all fresh. Um, one of the things to be aware of is the strawberry, we used to have 25,000 acres of strawberries in Oregon. And when fresh strawberries became production in California started ramping up. The frozen strawberry market out of Oregon moved as a secondary market for the off or seconds out of the fresh market. So watch countries like this if you are planning on investing or building up some frozen production in, in one of the, in say the US, it becomes a secondary market out of these other countries who are shipping globally, that frozen market. So you might have organic fresh coming out of there and then pretty soon a few years later, as they build production, not all of your production can go fresh. So you always have like 25% of it be sorted out and that'll go frozen. And then they're starting to sell that into other countries as frozen products. Nothing wrong with that, it just happens. So no matter of like two or three years, our, our Oregon strawberry frozen production industry went from 25,000 to 2,500 and it's never recovered. Here's where people eat fruit, North America, eat blueberries specifically, North America, Europe, and Asia Pacific, not really that surprising. Um, this is the way people are going. A lot of new plantings are, they're not even in the soil, they're in substrate production. This is organic blueberries out of Mexico. Um, you can be organic with substrate production. You can be organic from day one because your uh, soil is what matters on that. So you can start out organic pretty much from day one, whereas in the soil out in the field, we have to go through a three-year calendar year certification process to reach organic certification. Um, you're in production faster. Uh, you can also get higher yields per acre faster with this because you can cram bushes together at, when they're young and then expand as they grow. As that bush grows, you, would, you could space things out. So it's quite interesting. It's actually something I would try if you're in a climate that is not a natural climate for blueberries. I would really think about this. It's not that expensive, and especially, especially you could put this in greenhouses like this and actually grow them without a greenhouse part of the year, you could move it. Um, sometimes people are moving these crops in and out of here too, and there's now specialized containers for doing this. So it's something to even think about in the home garden space if you don't have great soil for blueberry production. Another big key thing is uh, the harvesting labor is costly to, especially here in the US. So this, this is a mechanic, mechanized assisted, and I'll show you actually machine harvesting later and how I'm thinking about it. But this is, you basically stand on this platform and beat the uh, bushes with a little rod and they fall off on the trays that are down here. You pull them out, put them here, and then this thing drives through the field. So it's assisting smaller growers with um, hand harvesting. 
So this is US and Canada, kind of some strengths and weaknesses. Um, you can see genetics, volume leader, domestic market proximity, mechanized uh, harvesting and, and packing. Our weaknesses are variable in quality, so we have weather events that happen on the East Coast um, or West Coast. Um, there's a gap in, if people are looking for opportunities for uh, careers, there's a huge gap in agriculture right now of um, skilled uh, agriculture professionals that are, that have, still have a decent lifespan. So it's um, a great opportunity across the board. Um, Old plantings, a lot of old varieties. So you, two of you mentioned you have 25-year-old plants. Those are older genetics. Um, so that's, that's what's happening here in the US. Um, growth is slowing in the US, um, but <laughs> people are taking out older plantings and reviving them with newer varieties. Okay. So the next section, we'll talk about um, development and how, we, how I have gone about it. Again, this is a little larger scale, um, but We'll, we'll pull it out the relevant parts. This is a development budget for um, blueberries on a per acre basis. This is what it costs to plant an acre of blueberries. Um, land preparation, we like to pre prepare the land the year before, if at all possible. So in the fall, we like to do some deep subsoiling. Um, by deep, I mean just breaking down through the hard pan to get below that with a rip, uh, usually a subsoiler, a large one. Um, we like to put the minerals on the year before so that the soils have a time to uh, intake those and adjust, uh, help that process get started. A lot of times you are having to acidify the soil, so you'd be using something like a sulfur to do that. Um, and I'm not making any recommendations today. You would need to work with your local extension agent to kind of um, get those details. Um, Bed forming, making a bed, we can talk about ways to do that. So this is basically the budget, what it costs to put in the, the full acre. Um, there are other expenses which, which we'll get to, but it's about $17,000. So one of the things you gotta realize when you're making a commitment to growing blueberries or most of these berries is that they're long life crops. So we've got blueberries in the Northwest that are 75 years old and as long as you're pruning them and maintaining them, they will last pretty much forever. Blackberries are more of about a 15 year lifespan and raspberries are more in the neighborhood of a five to seven year lifespan. And strawberries are about three years, depending on how you manage those. I've taken them to four years, but production significantly drops off, so. Um. Okay, this is um, what the yields and revenue look like and the um, cost of goods for harvesting and then the operational costs look like. So we don't harvest until year three. And so you can see the yields on the top here climbing up. And I'm sorry, I don't have a, I apologize, I don't have a pointer here. But um, yields increase, it takes about, um, your first yield comes in year three. Um, we get steady state production or we kind of level out here in year nine. And this is an actual budget of a farm project I'm working on right now. So we're actually going to be developing for my current client about 100 acres next, this fall. So this is a budget for a farm that we're working on purchasing right now. Um, about 85% of your berries will actually make grade. So we drop down to what's actually packed and sold here. And then these are 
frozen um, commercial prices at the scale we're at. We start these conventional um, and then we transition right here in, in the third year, so, or the second year we start transition to organic. We don't start them organic from the very beginning. You can, and I've done it, but it's a much slower start. The big difference is the um, ericoid mycorrhizae is what blueberries require. It, it surrounds the root and feeds nutrients and water into the plant. You go test your farm before planting blueberries, you won't have any. You go test your farm after planting blueberries, you'll have some, and then several years later, you have more. And the early, the early growth period of just planting the blueberry, it's really hard for that plant to take up organic fertilizer. It takes quite a bit of time for organic fertilizer to work through the soil biological systems and then become available to that blueberry plant. So we start them conventional with conventional fertilizer. That being said, we, um, we use a lot of uh, like humic acid and stuff and organic stuff with the uh, conventional fertilizer, but we just get a much better start. So the difference is um, we can actually hit this first harvest. Sometimes we're hitting 8,000 pounds the acre by starting that way. If we do it organically, sometimes we're only at 3,000 pounds. So the big key is looking at a return on investment, which most of you probably don't care about. <laughs> so if you're starting from scratch, we'll get into that from the home garden. We'll talk about how to do that as well. And then just um, pay attention to what you're spending every year uh, just to operate those blueberries. So you're, you're planting something that has to, it's a high input, high output. If you're not putting into it a lot, you're not going to get anything out of it. Those blueberries are really, there's a real correlation between how much you take care of them and how much you get, how much they produce. You can't really get, you can't get commercial organic plants. So you're buying a conventional plant anyway. You're also wanting to buy virus-free, and we'll get into that in a, minute, in a little bit, but it's really important not to go buy your neighbor's cutting or, it, it, blackberries are different. Blackberries naturally tip root, and it's a great way to get new starts from blackberries, although they're not virus-free. Blueberries don't recover from a lot of early mistakes. <laughs> we, there's a field, uh, we bought a farm, and there's a 20, 25 acre field on this farm that they overcropped in year two or year three, year two and three, they overcropped it, and it has never gone above 10,000 pounds the acre. Um, so there's the bottom line. So if you go through the development, you go through the farming costs, you, look, you can look at this, you're gonna be negative cash flow all the way to year six. So year six is when you start to make some money on this. Um, and then you haven't repaid back your investment without, this isn't without like the cost of money or anything like that. So you haven't repaid your investment until year 11. 100 acres does have an income, a net income per year of um, 815,000 roughly. So if you were to go do that, now the one thing this hasn't factored into it is the equipment. There's about another half million dollars worth of equipment that's needed to run uh, this 100 acre farm. So, so when we start looking at a farm, um, that budget that you just saw is actually for this farm. It's for this 100 acres right here. This farm is in Oregon. Um, so first, I, we try to get the farm boundaries. Um, I look at maps. There's a really great website. It's called Per Acre Value by Granular. And you can look at the soil types on there. So here's a soil map for this same farm. I don't know soils all over the 
country, so you would really have to take this, kind of figure out what the soils are like in your area. At a high level, you're looking for sandy or light, loamy soils. Now we do have some soils in the hills here, in the foothills that are red clay soil, and they're weird. There are very few places that I've seen this happen, but they will drain, they will rain hard, and the next day they're dry enough to go out and do work on them. So it's a kind of a weird situation. They're really well-drained. They're clay, but not in the kind of clay that we all think about. Uh, we do have white, this white clay soil called Dayton here in Oregon as well, and it's, that's like concrete. So it's terrible. So you're wanting light, sandy, loamy soil. You can only amend it so far. If you don't have that kind of soil and you're on a small scale, bring it in and, you know, like make a grow bed or do something. Don't beat your head against a brick wall trying to grow in really bad soil. It's just blueberries die. I mean, they just, blueberries are kind of like sheep. <laughs> the sheep are born looking for a place to die was what a, a guy, a livestock guy told me when we, we had some wool sheep a few years ago. Or, you know, years ago, but um, yeah. So uh, not to scare you off, blueberries, you know, can be produced, but it's, they're a little harder. So this soil, this Woodburn silt loam soil, this WUB right here, this soil, and if you went out and looked at this farm, the topography, you'll see this little undulation in the, in the soil out there. So it'll be just a lower spot. And this amity soil is heavier. Okay, still produces well, and then the other thing you can't tell by a soil map is that these maps can be off by 50 feet or more. So if you only have two acres, the entire soil profile that it says it should be might not even be on the two acres that you're out there. So go look, dig it up, see what's there. But from this map and from my experience of growing blueberries here, we can tell that these are pretty good soils. Um, we would probably be looking at doing something called tiling, which we'll get to in a minute. Oh, thank you. This is a farm that we designed, I designed um, back in 2009. Um, we purchased this farm and um, it only had this field here, here, and this field, and this one. Had 160 acres of blueberries. It's now 300 acres of blueberries. These are all blueberries, okay? And I just want you to take a minute and look at the design here because it's something you really need to think about. So things I think about when you're designing a new farm is um, access. Um, here's the shop, pretty centrally located. Here's the office. Um, water came from wells. So this is a well site here, a well site here, and another, let's see, that's a power pole there. Um, there's wells, there's a well here, there's a well here, and there was another well on this parcel. So how do we connect things? How are things going to connect? How is the flow going to come through our farm? If it's a small garden, um, centrally locating it toward to your house. I mean, how far, these are just things we think about when we're developing something. So how far are my utilities or how far are the tools away or access to pickers. One of the big things is, how do you pick this? Well, it takes 120 people to pick 30,000 pounds, which is a semi-load of blueberries in a day, okay, under good picking. So how do we get, and nobody seems to carpool that much. So how do we get 80 cars out here to get the 160 people into the field 
to pick. And then one of the fascinating things was on this 300 acre farm, there's 15% in roads and headlands. So it's non-productive space that's not making any return on it. That's just roads, but we have to have it. So there's a, there's a spot right here that we bring in sawdust to re, we put sawdust on these fields every three years. We open up the fabric, we'll show, I'll show you that later. But all of these things have to go into the thinking around how you develop something, even probably doesn't matter if you have five bushes in your yard, that probably doesn't matter how far you have to walk to them and how far you have to carry the sawdust and how far the water is, but those are all things that we think about when we develop large scale farms. So uh, farms of this scale, we actually have a falconer that we pay $65,000 for the summer 10 week contract. He comes in and flies uh, um, his falcons. He lives in a RV trailer with, it's one of those <coughs> ATV trailers and the back is actually set up with bird cages and a freezer. And he feeds them uh, their um, organic pheasant is what he feeds the birds. Yeah, so they're really well fed. I mean, <laughs> uh, and they fly and chase starlings is the big bird problem. On a small scale, netting is the best way to go. Um, just You just have to get good at netting them and Even keeping them out. Probably, yeah. Probably on two acres, netting would be your best option. Ten acres? Yeah, so they have things, things called uh, bird screechers, and they emit really horrible noises. It sounds like the bird is slowly, well, being pulled apart and dying. Yeah, and so that, you know, scares the birds. Um, I don't like it. It just drives me nuts. So, uh, yeah. But the falcon, I mean, you really have to have, like, um, 300 acres to pay for that uh, cost of a falcon. So... On a small scale, netting two acres, yeah, probably still netting uh, would be a good idea. He brings four, he flies one at a time, and each has its own specialty. So early in the morning, he flies one, that, and they are uh, hybrid crosses. One of them, uh, the, it, its favorite thing to do is go down through the bushes and kind of do this. So he flies out in the morning to get things out of the, or the field that have been there. And then during the middle of the day, they have one that just kind of flies up about 2,000 feet. They call it the cone of death. It just, you know, scares everything that's down underneath it. And it's funny, the neighbor a mile away comes and yells at me because all the birds go to his place and eat all his berries. <laughs> I'm like, well, you should sign up too. And he's like, oh, I'm not gonna pay that kind of money and all this kind of stuff. And he's just carrying on about it. And uh, yeah, well, every year he loses 15% of his berries to birds, so whatever. The falcon actually aggressively chases the starlings. and. Starlings are programmable. So you can teach a starling to stay out of your field by chasing it and creating a negative environment for it. It's one of the few birds that that happens. Robins don't care. Robins will go up there, claw all the berries off, and then go on the ground and eat them. And you can't shoot robins because they're a songbird. So you have to, people have tried other, they've tried dogs to chase robins out of a field and it's not worked. And you, food safety either. You can't really, shouldn't have animals in the field, so. Okay, we digressed. Okay, this is tile, so you can plant on, um, wait, let me, let me go to the next one. Okay, we'll go back. But um, this is tile, we're, we're putting in um, four inch perforated drain pipe every 20 to 30 feet here on this farm. In fact, you see in this draw, it's hard to see, but I think you can tell there's a, there's a draw there, okay? That draw is a little heavier soil. 
And uh, dead of summer, there was water four feet down in there because there's a river that goes around this farm like this in a big horseshoe shape. And the Tyler guy, what he found was he couldn't go too deep because that river was flowing underneath that farm and back around. It's just really funny. But um, so we had to go up. Um, this is all done with a GPS and it's all done on elevation. So it's a huge grid. Um, if you're growing two acres, you still want to make sure you have well-drained soils. You can do this with a trencher. You just have to think about it and, you know, get all your laser, your lines or whatever, figure out how to make sure there's, there's fall in that and you have a place that, an outlet for it too. But anyway, we'll, we'll tile to create even better drainage in a soil that might be a little bit heavier. Um, sometimes it takes pretty big equipment. We'll see some more of this later. This is actually a hazelnut farm um, on the left side. That's um, irrigation going in, but just kind of showing you different um, trench ways that we're, we're doing this. Um, that trencher is a tiling trencher and the main line was happened to be the right size. And so to save money, instead of digging this with an excavator, we brought in this guy with a trencher and he would just zip along and trench ahead of us. And then we would come in and I think I have a picture later on that shows us putting the irrigation system in. This was a, like a 15 inch irrigation system that came about a mile and a half to the river down there. So, so on plantings, um, this is my basic recommendations that's we've, that we've kind of come to over, what has it been, 15 years of developing blueberries um, at scale. So we really want to get the pH in the 5.2 to 5.6 range. We want to make sure the field's well-drained or tiled. Um, irrigation, the best we have come up with for an irrigation system is drip. You can use a soaker hose if you're on a small scale at home. We'll talk about irrigation requirements later in the day. So this is, again, still on like developing something. Um, we use a double, double line drip, drip with 18 inch emitters that are 0.42 gallons a minute. And they're made by Netafim. We've had the best results by the ones made by that company. Um, we talked a little bit about logistics, thinking about your headlands, your offload sites, how you're gonna get fruit in and out of that farm. So that farm that we showed you a picture of produces 5 million pounds of blueberries a year. Yeah. So you have to think about these things. That's, um, I knew, I used to know this number, but uh, uh, I used to have these statistics because they're kind of, they, they're staggering. Uh, and you really have to think about this, but 5 million pounds at 30,000 pounds in a truck is 166 loads of blueberries in and out of that farm. And that's crates coming in and then blueberries leaving that farm. So you got to think about that, yeah. We had a 1,200-acre development that was going to produce 30 million pounds of blueberries a year, and you'll see pictures of that later. So these are all things you have to really think about. I guess not so much if it's a home scale, but. And people get really caught up in trying to like put the plant between the drippers and where should that go. Don't worry about it. If they're on, if you have 18-inch emitters, you're going to get water penetration, and the roots of that blueberry plant will go and find those water spots. One of the things about drip irrigation, though, is that it it, when it's dripping in the soil, it creates this um, tear-shaped profile in the soil, okay? So to get around that, what we do is pulse irrigate so that we keep, we, we put down 10 minutes, 10 minutes, and it broadens that wetting pattern of that drip irrigation. So, okay, back to planting. 
Compost, um, we, be really careful with compost. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you the best. The best is pine, pine, but pine, not um, bark, but bark, needles, bark, and the tree, but pine. Not, uh, and the second is dug fir. So we actually had like a 20% increase in yields using pine bark. It's not common in, in the west side of Oregon and it's much more expensive to get it here, but if, it depends on your scale. If you're a small scale, buy pine sawdust, probably, you, I think you can get that at a lot of feed stores. Pole yards, yeah. <coughs> Definitely make sure none of it's been ever treated with anything that's really toxic. But um, anyway, so we use pine sawdust and Doug fir or true fir sawdust. Um, I have not used, I think you could use maple, but things like oak and ash and some of these, and cedar especially, they all have, um, is it liliopathic effect? They, they kill things around them. <laughs> so walnut too, uh, so be careful with that. I wouldn't recommend any of those kind of types of sawdust. Back to compost. A lot of animal compost has high salts so blueberries don't like salt they're really sensitive to it so be really careful with that like some of the best homemade compost would be um shredded stuff from your garden um clover uh, one of the best mulches i've i like is clover and alfalfa shredded composted and then applied that's really great and there's a lot of fair amount of there's some nitrogen in alfalfa. In fact, there's a researcher at OSU, as a side note here, on blackberries that fed his entire blackberry crop on, he bought um, alfalfa hay, good quality from horse, uh, from a provider that was brought into horse hay, so high quality. Um, and he used like three and four inch flakes, laid it down next to his blackberries and got almost the same production as he would with like pelleted chicken manure and things like that. So just something as a side note, but um, so we created a special blend of compost. We had a, we were buying 800 loads a year in these development farms. So this guy was willing to, you know, batch up and do something we wanted. We found that we liked the microbiology, the, the bioactivity from cow manure because of their extra stomachs and how that comes out. So cow manure was, I think, 40% base. Then uh, yard debris waste, which is grass and tree prunings. And then um, we added, um, we added uh, rotted fir bark from old um, mill sites. And then we had I think we put in about, it works out to about 300 pounds of the acre of, they call it crustacean shell, it's shrimp shell and crab shell. And there's a huge bioactive lift from using the shrimp and crab shell and something about blueberries really, really like it. Um, I was doing research on root rot diseases and found out here in the coastal regions where the old native tribes had their oyster shucking areas in the woods the trees in those areas have no root rot. Really great, well-growing trees. So something about this crab, shrimp, there's also some, some uh, nitrogen in those as well. So that compost was that mix. Um, if you don't have all those ingredients, um, peat moss works okay, it's low pH. Um, one of the things we found with this compost, it was high pH, so we actually mixed it with dusting sulfur as just before it came to the farm. So we used 
um, an organically approved dusting sulfur that was mixed into that compost as it was loaded on the trucks that lowered the pH by two points. We were getting it down to 6.2. That p the natural pH of that compost was like eight. So just be aware of that, that it's high and it can have salt content too, so. You'll see it later, but we use, um, for weed control, one of the biggest uh, changes in organic management was the fabric. We use a 3.2 ounce polyethylene woven fabric. It's um, landscape cloth or ground cloth. They also use it in, uh, under roadways, so it's a ge uh, geotech fabric that people call it who build roadways. Um, and you can get that. We would buy it in, um, we bought it directly from China through the manufacturer, but it would be, it came in um, 36 inch to 39 inch rolls and we put two pieces because we, when we started doing this, uh, we only had single and we put that on and then there's no way to open it up and add more compost, minerals or sawdust. So you're, you're then um, restricted to liquid fertilizer feeding, which is really expensive, but it's also not as effective long-term. So we went to this, um, we designed and built this thing out of a, um, I don't have a picture of it up here, but it's a, um, uh, it lays fabric along, when they do road construction sites, you'll see it with the stakes in it. Well, it's the same machine, we just put it on two sides, we laid down each side of the, the mound, and you'll see it in a minute. Um, and then we folded it together first with um, metal spikes, and we got them to actually manufacture us a plastic spike, so it's reusable. The metal spike rusted in two years, so when you go to open it and put more minerals on it, sawdust and compost, it was rusted, you had to get a new one, it would tear holes in the fabric. So we now had a, have a plastic spike. But we plant 11 foot row spacing and three foot down the row, which is 1,320 plants <coughs> per acre. And then the cover crop in the row, we grow a um, grass cover crop you'll see in a minute. And then we also, this is a picture, we create habitat. So we brought back hedgerows um, to our farms because <coughs> bumblebees are the best pollinator for blueberries. Um, they're better than honeybees. You still need to have honeybees. Um, but so we were trying to create a year-round food source for the bumblebees. And uh, we actually took out that 1,200 that acre farm field we did. We have, I think there was close to, well, there's seven miles. I think it's close to seven miles of this hedgerow running down through the middle of the farm. So on the River edge, we had habitat. Bees go in there, move through the field, move to the center of the field, be able to feed, move to the other side of the field, and it was a mile across. So we had this half mile. We worked with, with Xerxes Society to kind of design this, and if you haven't been to their website, they have a really, they have a ton of great information. They work with bee networks all over the US. You know what I did? So I, at my home place, I have 10 acres. I have a half acre garden, vegetable garden, and I give away produce, but because I haven't figured out how to sell it yet, but <laughs> on a small scale. <laughs> anyway, the hedgerows, so I have 10 100-foot rows, and the hedgerows in my, in my garden space between the next 10 vegetable beds are fruit, so blueberries. So I've got, so that's small scale to me, is I'm, I'm, I'm farming, I'm efficient at my 100-foot row of blueberries, and then I have my vegetable rows in between, so I have 10 of those beds, those are four feet a piece, so it's like 40 feet, and then another fruit row. That's how I've done it on a small scale. That 11 foot, um, so you have to think about your equipment. Can your equipment fit between that? Can you still manage the blueberries? 
and then how are you going to do weed control? If it's three rows, you could weed whack the edges. I mean, you could literally do like weed whacking. They now have that really nice hedge trimmer head for weed whackers if you get those combination heads. And it, it angles like this. So you can weed, you can just, yeah, you can just spin right through it. So it's possible, yeah. There's guys actually in hazelnuts planting corn, field corn and grass seed between hazelnuts because hazelnuts are planted 20 feet apart. So that's a bed that's, this bottom of this bed to the bottom of the other side is about three feet wide. That's where they're growing for us. Um, in this non-fabric system, which I wouldn't recommend because you just have huge weed pressure then, and blueberries do not compete with weeds very well. Blackberries will. Blackberries you can grow once they're established with grasses and things, and I would plant broadleafs in there to try to, so you don't have much grass. Grass tends to choke out stuff. But in blueberries, they don't compete. And so we have seen conventional fields where the roots are out here. But this hasn't seemed to limit our production at all. So OSU, by the way, OSU, Oregon State University, is the premier worldwide berry research um, place. Um, Bernadine Strick is in charge of that. And there's countless articles. In fact, I co-authored an economic study of organic blueberry production with her and the economic uh, professor at OSU. So. OSU is a huge resource for um, berry production, um, like, pay, you know, handouts. So a lot of this stuff you can find in, in places like that, too. These are the varieties we use in the Northwest, um, Duke, Draper, Blue Ribbon, Legacy. Um, this goes from early to mid to late season harvest. Uh, an early season for us would be um, this third week of June and late season for us is, is like the first of October. So that's a kind of our Northwest season. Yeah, great question. That, uh, so what I should say is blueberries have, I think it's uh, four categories. There's Northern high bush, re which require high chill hours. So it requires cold for them to initiate fruit bud set. There's um, mid chill or low chill, which would be what we call Southern high bush. Um, there's low bush, which would be wild um, blueberry production that's um, east coast has a lot of that in Canada um, they're grown on the ground and wild is a misnomer because they're actually farmed on the ground so that's why we call them low bush blueberries and then there's uh, rabbit eye which is a type of blueberry and that's this titan and and uh, over time are from the rabbit eye category and they will actually handle cold weather or hot weather so Legacy is a cross between low chill and high chill. So the funny thing about legacy, and this is actually a legacy field here, uh, that it's being harvested, is that it won't drop its leaves when it gets really cold. So in areas where you get a lot of snow, that can be a problem, because that snow will get on there and break branches off. Um, and it can, and it's, I saw the first flower last week, and we're still, it's way too cold to be flowering right now, so it can get bit early in the season if it starts to come out and, and have flowers. Blueberry flowers can handle, it's like when the, fir, when, the, when the bud starts to open, I think it's like 20 degrees, 22 degrees, something like that. And then um, at 50% bloom, it's like 25 degrees. And then at full bloom, it's down to about 28 degrees. And then when you have that really, that the, little blueberries on there, just that really small little blueberry, you really need to keep them above freezing. So on that farm, on this farm, you can see these wind machines here. So this particular farm was in a low spot, which made it, the soil really great. It had 
eight feet of sandy loamy soil. But it also was a cold spot where it didn't have air drainage below it. So air, cold air settled in here and was literally like 10 degrees colder here than it was a half mile up the road where you got up onto the bench. So we, we had these frost fans in here and um, did really well um, with that. Okay, um, a great place uh, that provides commercial um, plants is Fall Creek Farm and Nursery. It's located here in Oregon. It's the worldwide premier blueberry breeder and, and producer of plants. And they have a really great website. I don't think you can buy directly from them, but you can at least look up the varieties and then try to see if your garden center or somebody locally could get it. Now they would sell on two acre and five acre. They'll sell, that's, com uh, that's more commercial production, so. So in these profiles, um, so blue crop, crop is on the tartar side, but all of these blueberries, uh, well, okay, Elliot is a variety that's late and tart and nasty. And then um, Aurora is supposed to be an improvement on it and isn't much better. Um, Draper is rock hard and will bounce off a wall and then still be good in the fridge for three weeks. It doesn't taste bad and it has a good crunch, but it's kind of just like bleh, nothing's there. It's like, you know, you bit into something that's not there. Um, Duke is uh, one of the early, most flavorful ones. And um, my favorite variety is Legacy. Um, just the, you freeze that in the wintertime, you open that up and, t and taste it in the wintertime, fresh or frozen. It's got really incredible flavor. So that's one of my favorite varieties. It also happens to be one that's really robust organically. And it's kind of hard to kill. It's uh, one of the better, easier ones to grow, is Legacy. Okay, this is a newly planted field. Um, you can see the layout here. One of the things that we were constricted by is the length of drip tube that you can run. You can run about 500 feet before you lose too much pressure, and then you can't flush it out really well. So see this right in here? This is actually another sub-main that comes in we didn't want to chop these rows off based where this field was, but there's another sub-main that comes in and picks up the end of this field here. So just things that we, had, that we were thinking about when we were developing these farms. Um, so they're all set out row length. This is a 300 acre farm. This farm produced 2.8 million pounds last year, and it'll produce about 5 million pounds in full production. Um, we do ESL, English as a second language classes here, on work time free to the, to the staff on this farm. We pay full medical benefits. We, ha we, we have free housing on the farm um, and we provide um, three weeks paid vacation and we provide, they, um, it's all living wage. So I don't think anybody's <coughs> below $15 an hour on the farm and most people are making 40 to $50,000 a year, some higher than that as wages. So just as a background on um, staffing. Um, this was something we designed. Um, here's a picture of what it looks like. Nobody had designed equipment to really do this at the scale that we were doing, so we had to come up with this ourselves. Um, this is from the Midwest, and it was so hilarious calling these people. Actually, this I think this company, Amco, is like from Arkansas or Georgia or something like that, and I couldn't understand them on the phone. And uh, I'm like, and he's like, text. What are you talking about tax? We don't tax here. I mean, it was just this hilarious exchange trying to get these guys to build this thing. So they built this. 
for digging ditches. Um, they, these discs were turned the other way and they call it something, um, they contour farming back there. It was something to do with that. But anyway, so we were thinking outside the box trying to figure out how do we go faster? How do we make these beds on a thousand acres without, you know, without uh, in, uh, efficiently and, and quickly. So we came up with this. We saw something like this down in California where they were mounting up almonds. We put it together and it's run by a 80 horse tractor, uh, 90 horse tractor on um, GPS. So that every center of those beds is accurate within one inch. Um, and that's how you get these beds looking like that. So this row angle is the same here. Not well, I think this is the same as this one. But we had uh, that 3,000 acre development you'll see <laughs> later on. Um, we um, lined that up from the beginning all the way across and it's six and a half. It's five miles. One farm was five miles long. The other farm is a mile long and a mile this way, I think it is. And those rows line up all the way through. So when you're spraying, uh, organic farming, we still spray quite a bit. Um, when you're spraying, you just start <laughs> and just keep going. Same with mowing. So you can, efficiency is one of the big keys here. Um, that 100 acre farm, when we looked at that on a budget to develop it was 17,000. We did this 1,200 acres for 14,300. So you can see the cost savings when you go to when you have scale and that's you know from a half acre to two acres to 20 acres there's a scale of efficiency that happens um, that's that's just the way it is um, this is a press pan that we were using so once we've formed it up you can see this bed's nice and formed has weights on it we'll go through we have teeth in here and we'll put down our sawdust and compost and we'll incorporate it into the soil before we go to then drip tube and then fabric and then we burn a hole and then we dig a hole in the fabric. So this is a sawdust spreader putting down sawdust um, throughout the field. That's a three-year-old planting that he's putting more sawdust on. This is a new planting. So we're putting down compost. You can see the dark here and then we put sawdust on top and then we run that press <coughs> press pan with an incorporator in it. Oh, that, yes, pine is the best if you can get it in your area, and dug fir is the second best. Don't use uh, walnut or cedar or hardwoods uh, because they, they, can, they, they aren't so good. Um, and we've used um, white fir or grand fir, and it cakes. It's really strange, so kind of be careful with that. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.